But this morning we're in John chapter 1, so turn there. We continue our series through the Gospel of John. Now, if you've ever been to the, to the filming of a, of, a talk, of, a, uh, of a talk show or a sitcom in New York City or Hollywood or, or L.A., you know that what oftentimes happens, they, they will sort of contract the services of, of a, of a warm-up, okay? a, 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 some kind of comedian, someone who's there to sort of prime the pump to prepare the show for the, the central star, whoever that happened to be. So, so many moons ago, Susan and I were, were out of California with some friends, and, and we were at NBC trying to get in to see Seinfeld, okay? And we were told that only had a 15-year waiting list, okay? So we couldn't see Seinfeld. But they told us you could come see the filming of this horrific um, um, show called Grace Under Fire. I don't know if anybody's seen it. Anyway, but they said it was worth it just to hear the warm-up act. It was worth it. And so we went, and man, it was awesome. It was better than the sitcom, easily. It sort of, and it sort of overshadowed okay, what was happening on the, on the stage there. And in a lot of ways, that's the dynamic that John the Baptist is contending with in this section of John. John the Baptist, being an Old Testament prophet, he, he's living in the wilderness. He's like the Tasmanian devil with, with shoes and sandals and eating locusts between his teeth. And he's, he's, he's there preaching repentance. He's, 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 he's calling the, the people of Israel to prepare themselves. He's there to, to literally prime the pump spiritually for the coming of Jesus. And he's attracting so much attention that he has to remind the people, hey, guess what, guys? I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I'm only preparing the way for the Christ. And, and this testimony of John the Baptist in John's gospel is, is, is particularly significant. Let's go back a few weeks when we talked about the purpose for John the Apostle writing this book. We said John the Apostle is writing so that we would believe and believe in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God's chosen one, the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And, and so John is sort of preparing a case, so to speak, in this book. And, and he's, he's about to start calling witnesses. And his first witness to the stand, the first human witness, in fact, is John the Baptist. Now, last week, Pastor Josh gave you guys a sort of a full download of John the Baptist and who he was and where he came from. Highly commend that sermon. Go, go listen to it. And, and, and Pastor Josh talked about John's initial confrontation was with these religious leaders. They had come out to the desert to find out what was going on. And John had given them a piece of testimony about who he was and, just as importantly, who he was not. But now the, she, the scene shifts. It is the next day. And the setting goes from private to public. John the Baptist, this is going to be his first time addressing the crowds. This is going to be the first time that he gets to give a piece of testimony about who Jesus Christ is. What will John the Baptist say, given this unique and first opportunity to provide this piece of testimony? John 1, verse 29 and following, show us. Let's read there. The next day he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes the man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes to this text. Open our eyes to your word, and in doing so, open our eyes to Jesus, the Lamb of God. Lord, help us to see him as he truly is, and our need for him. In your name we pray, amen. For those of you who are familiar with the, the, the romance novel called Susan and Paul Gilbert, this is 25 years of, of marriage coming up in August, and, and those of you familiar with us know us. It took, it took quite a while for me to convince Susan that, that I indeed was the man of her dreams. Okay, I, I knew that I was the man of her dreams. She was not so sure. But as long as it took me to convince her, it took me even longer to convince her parents. Okay? And I think her mom's, one of her mom's first comments after meeting me was, Paul kind of wears a lot of ratty T-shirts, which, which I took great per, you know, personal offense at. My shirts in college were awesome. I had an In-N-Out Burger shirt. I only washed it twice in three years. I don't know why she would say such bad things about it. Now, she forgave me, you know, Mrs. Ward did, once the first grandchild came. So everybody knows that story, right? So, but it seems that I had not made a great first impression. Here in this setting, John the Baptist has an opportunity to make a first impression with the crowd. This is his first public pronouncement about Jesus. Now remember that John had previously baptized Jesus, and and John's gospel does not record this for us. The other gospels do, probably because John knew that that the people he was writing to were very familiar with that piece of the story. But John the Baptist has already baptized Jesus, and then Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, and to prepare himself for his public ministry. And now it seems that we pick up the story at the end of these 40 days, where Jesus is coming out of the wilderness. He's returning. He tells us in this text, coming towards John, where John was baptizing the crowds. This is where Jesus's public ministry begins. What is John going to tell us? And the first thing he says, look at verse 29, behold... In other words, hark, right, Willie Shakespeare? Listen up. May I have your attention, please? And you can imagine that all these crowds, hundreds if not thousands of people are gathered around, and John the Baptist sort of walks back up on the bank, you can picture him, and says, may I make an announcement to you? It's sort of John's E.F. Hutton moment. Remember this from the 80s, right? And and, And he says... In verse 29, what I think is the the central title that he works off of in the Gospel of John. Not the only title. He calls Jesus a number of things. And Jesus calls himself a number of things. The bread of life. The resurrection and the life. But it's this Lamb of God motif 
that he comes back to over and over again. And he says, may I present to you the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we know for John that this idea of Jesus as the Lamb is not peripheral. It is not incidental. It is not accidental. When people, you may not realize this, but the last recorded words we have about Jesus in the Bible are from John, but they're not in this gospel. Where are they? The book of Revelation. And what is John's favorite, most familiar term for Jesus in Revelation over and over and over again? The lamb. The lamb who was slain. The lamb who is worthy of honor. The lamb who is worthy of glory. I don't think it would be stretching it to say that for John, and that means for us, that the lamb is the central motif. It is the central metaphor. It is the central figure that we will have for Jesus for all eternity. Which means that when John begins the public ministry of Jesus with this pronouncement, it means it's significant. It means it's important. It means we need to pay attention to it and we want to unpack it. So the title of this sermon is Lost Without the Lamb. And here we're going to look at the Lamb's authority and the Lamb's mission. The Lamb's authority. On what basis are we saying what we're saying about this person, Jesus Christ? The Baptists, and we're just going to call him the Baptist for short. Can we, can we do that? Okay. The Baptists, the, the commentators say that. The Baptist says something bizarre here, and he says it twice. He says, first, I did not know him, but now I do. He says again, I did not know him, but now I do. And, and we have to, and let's be honest, that's kind of bizarre, because who were John and Jesus? John the Baptist and Jesus. They were country cousins, right? Okay, but both raised in the hills. And, and their moms, Mary and Elizabeth, were, were, were related cousins. And so, so Jesus and John were clearly related. They clearly would have, would have grown up hearing the stories, hearing the prophecies, hearing the predictions, hearing the miraculous birth. So it's kind of strange that John would say, did not know him. Okay, now... now I guess it's kind of understandable if you think, well, you know, John's been living in the wilderness for the last 10 or 15 years. You know, this, this might be one of those family reunion moments that we have in Tennessee all the time, you know, where you meet someone you don't know and fall in love and find out that they're your cousin, your first cousin. Okay, that, that's, that's not what seems to be happening here. They knew. John, John knew intellectually. But remember, Jesus has been toiling in obscurity for 30 years as a carpenter's son in the backwash of Israel, in Nazareth, in Galilee. And of course, it would not be surprising for John to be confused, to doubt, to wonder, God, are you sure you got this right? <laughs> are you sure this is the Messiah? Because this, this isn't going down the Messiah path as far as I can see. And then in the text, it says, John, God provided John the Baptist clarity. In verses 33 and 34, tell us how this happens. See, when, when John was baptizing Jesus, God told him, John, here's how you're going to know that Jesus is, in fact, my chosen. Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. 
He, in fact, is the Messiah. You'll know it because my Holy Spirit is going to come and is going to settle upon him. And, and, and doves were, were sort of the, the, the symbol of how this was going to happen. These, these doves, symbolizing the Holy Spirit, were going to come and rest, sort of rest upon Jesus. In other words, it's going to be blatantly obvious to you, John, that I am with this man, that he is my chosen because my presence, the Holy Spirit, is going to rest upon him. And in fact, we know from the other Gospels that's exactly what happened. But I think to kind of put it in our language, here's kind of what God is is telling John the Baptist. He says, John, here is my promised one, Jesus. You've known about him your whole life. But now, John, I'm opening your eyes to see who he truly is. And for us, that is a salvation picture for us. We have to remember that what we know about Jesus, what you know about Jesus today, does not come to you naturally. We know that, in, that there's things that come naturally to, to all of us as human beings made in the image of God, that there's a creator, that God has made it us, that, that we're accountable. Romans 1 tells us this. But the f- idea that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, this is something God has to reveal to you. It's something that God has to open your eyes to. It's something that God has to wed your heart and my heart to, to give us saving faith. Only God can open your eyes for you and I to see Jesus for who he truly is. And that is, and that is a, a constant theme of the Gospels. Matthew 16, different Gospel, different Apostle, What does Matthew say? Jesus said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon's never shy, right, Peter? Simon Peter replied, well, Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now listen, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, we have to ask ourselves, how, how does God reveal himself today to you? And, and, and the postmodern answer would say, oh, in a thousand ways. For as many people as there are here, God can reveal himself in that many ways, or the higher pi- power, or whoever it is that provides you meaning and an overarching belief structure and I want you to think with me just for a second. John the Apostle is writing. He's the last living apostle. This is 60 years later after the events of this text. And John is writing, and he knows that this gospel is going to be authoritative in the life of the church. He knows it's going to be binding. He knows that it's it's going to be looked to as a true written record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And for John, this is so important, this written word, for folks, this written word has just as much authority as does an eyewitness. You know, we, we think, man, I, I wish God would speak to me. Uh, guess what? He has. He has. 
See, I, some of us might say, well, you know, I would believe, I wish, if, if I had been an eyewitness, John, John knows us. And at the end of his gospel, remember Thomas said, I, I only believe I can touch his side and feel the, feel the holes in his hands. And, and, and he does. He says, oh, Jesus, you're the son of God. And Jesus said, yes, I am. You believe. But then here's what he says. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen, who have not touched. You see, we don't need that because we have been given this. That's the implications of what John is telling us by recording these words of John the Baptist. And there's an important application point for us, church. You cannot divorce your spiritual life from this word. You cannot, and this is very controversial in a postmodern relativistic age, you cannot have an authentic spiritual life apart from this word. You cannot know who Jesus is apart from this, wor- apart from this word. In fact, who Jesus is can't be unbound from the pages of Scripture. There's no real Jesus out there to discover. There's no real authentic Jesus apart from who God has revealed him to be in his word. See, this is not merely an historical book. It's not merely a great biography. It is an inspired, authoritative word of God. God told John the Baptist, and John the Apostle writes it and says, God has told you and God has told me. Because one of the things that we talked about at the Controversial Christ class this past Wednesday is something that, that I see happening in a lot of progressive wings of of the Christian church, progressive, liberal, which I think, while well-intentioned, are woefully misguided. Because the idea is that, that from, from one perspective, there's a lot of things in this Bible that offend the culture. The Bible says a lot of things about judgment and limits and sexuality, and, and that's offensive to people. So in, in order to bridge the gap between the Christian faith, and the larger secular culture, we have to sort of separate Jesus from the Word. So in other words, if if the Apostle Paul says something really controversial, because we know Paul, he was always saying something to get himself in hot water. Well, if Jesus didn't say it, then it's not as important. See, it's, it's it's the words of Jesus himself that's sort of have final authority, not the other things in the Bible. So it sort of separate, it puts a wedge between Jesus and his word. And, and there's a few problems with this. Number one, do you know that Jesus at every opportunity took the time to affirm every last jot and tittle of the Old Testament? I did not come to abolish the law, he says. I came to fulfill it. It's all about me, Luke 24. Every bit of it, the law and the prophets, the writings are all about me. Think about this. We want to separate Jesus from the controversial things Paul says, but where did Paul get his commission? From Jesus. Jesus says, you'll be my apostle to the Gentiles, Paul. Who do you think was giving these revelations to Paul? It was Jesus. We want to separate Jesus from the hard things that that some of these these other apostles said, and, and remember this, in Matthew 28, when Jesus gave his great commission to his apostles, 
He said, go therefore into all the nations, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, now what else did he tell them, though? Teaching them everything, what? That I've commanded you. See, Paul hasn't gone rogue. The other scripture writers haven't gone rogue. There's not like Jesus and then the rest of the Bible. Jesus took every opportunity to not only affirm the Bible, but to obey it. To obey it to submit himself to it. He got baptized. He went to the temple for, for purification. He, he, he paid his taxes. He did all the things that a faithful, obedient Jew would do. So it will not do. It will not do. It will shipwreck your faith. Jesus will become whatever you want him to be apart, if you take him apart from his word. Jesus will simply be another cultural commodity value to be adapted to whatever the secular world happens to say is important that we affirm at any particular point in time. If you want to search for spirituality, if you want to search for Jesus, dig your teeth into this gospel. Here's something else somebody from the controversial Christ class said. It's really good. She said, I'm going to be meeting with a coworker today for about a half hour to start reading the Bible. We're going to start in the Gospels with John. She asked me a couple of weeks ago what she needed to do to be saved, and it opened the door to discuss the Gospel. And I love this. It's so cool to see God drawing people to himself and right now. Yes, it is so cool. That's how God uses his word. That's how God reveals his word. This is what gives the Lamb its authority. So, point two, it gives the Lamb his authority, but it also delineates his mission. Go back to verse 29. This pronouncement, this title that John gives, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you you know what an anachronism is? Okay, So, So, anachronism, something inappropriately inserted from a future era back into a past era, right, where it doesn't belong, where, it, where it's out of place. So, so maybe the all-time, one of the all-time great movies, Back to the Future, of course, right? So, so Marty McFly, Enchantment Under the Sea Dance, he's getting ready to go back to the future, but he has to first do what? He's got to play Johnny B. Good, okay, on the guitar, right? One of the great cinematic moments, and I love it, watch it over and over again. Um, I mean, a couple times I've watched it. Anyway, but here's the problem. He's playing on this on this awesome guitar that wasn't even invented until years later. So even if it could have happened, it didn't happen. It's a movie. Anyway, whatever. That's an anachronism, right? Something that doesn't belong. That's what some critics and scholars contend is happening here. See, they would make the point of, well, you know, John the Baptist, he didn't know anything about a suffering Messiah a dying Messiah. Here he is proclaiming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet, we know from the other Gospels that when John is thrown in the prison, he's sending his messengers, his boys, back to Jesus saying, what's up? I don't, I, this whole idea of a suffering Messiah doesn't make sense to me. And so they would simply say, critics, that this is an anachronism. This is something that John the Apostle just sort of inserted in there 60 years after the fact just to sort of bolster his case. Now, let me say this. I, 
First of all, the Bible always answers itself. So to, to, to quote John Piper, keep on reading, okay? Just keep on reading. Now, I do think it's likely that John the Baptist probably did not fully understand what this meant. But you know what? None of the apostles did, none of the disciples did for any part of Jesus' ministry. In fact, a common theme, feature of the Gospel of John, and we're going to see this time after time after time, where something happens or Jesus says something or does something, and then Jesus will turn to his disciples and he will say, you don't get it now, you don't fully understand now, but you'll understand it later. They knew, but they didn't know. Jesus was constantly telling them, I got to go to Jerusalem, I got to die, I got to suffer, I got to rise on the third day. And they were like, so you're going to set up your kingdom in Jerusalem? Is that the way it's going to roll? And, and I mean, they were, it was constantly this thing. Another an example from John itself, John 13. Jesus is washing their feet to, to demonstrate to them their need for cleansing and forgiveness internally. So it says, he came to, to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but what? Afterward you will understand. So yes, it's kind of like watching a movie. If you ever watch the, the movie Sixth Sense by that guy with a name we can't pronounce, okay? And, and it can't be spoiler alert, it's 18 years later, right? But, but when you get to the punchline at the end of the movie, then you're like, oh, I've seen the movie, but now I go back and watch it, and now I get it. I understand what's happening. Guys, that's, what ha- that's what's happening to the apostles. That's what's happening to, to John the Baptist. John the Apostle is looking back 60 years later, and he's saying, oh, he's that kind of lamb. See, in, in Jewish literature, there could have been a number of ways to think about a lamb. Lamb could have been a conqueror, like a, like a ram with horns. Or lamb could have been someone who suffered for his people, but not necessarily die. But here, John gets it. See, it all makes sense. Because there was another purpose for a lamb that no one dared entertain at that time. You see, lambs were for a lot of things, but they were particularly what for, for what? Eating and slaughtering for sacrifice. See, God told the people when they celebrated Passover, Prepare the lambs for sacrifice. Spread the blood over the door. Judgment is going to pass because of that blood. Lambs were an important part of the sacrificial system where sin offerings were, were given up. Look, listen to Leviticus 4. And every Jew would have known this. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. If you wanted your sins to be forgiven, a lamb was required. And, of course, that lamb did not take away sins. That's why it was offered over and over and over again. The blood of bulls and goats do not take away sin, Hebrews says. But it reminded the people that we need a lamb, the lamb, capital L lamb, to die once and for all for us. But not just any lamb. A lamb that was righteous and pure and holy. You see, an unrighteous person cannot 
sacrifice and pay the penalty for another unrighteous person. That's simply tit for tat. It takes an innocent. It takes someone who was pure. It takes someone who was spotless to take on the penalty that you and I deserved. And this is why John, in 1 John 3, 5, remember, John is the only gospel writer who also wrote letters in the New Testament. Listen to what 1 John 3, 5 says. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Do you hear the similarities? And in him, there is no sin. See, Jesus was the pure and perfect, spotless lamb. And this points us to something, and it's also important, that we as humans, we as sinful humanity, we cannot absolve ourselves from our own guilt. We cannot absolve ourselves from our own sin. When I was um, in training at Florida State University in the Marriage and Family Therapy Clinic, and we would huddle in, in teams and supervise cases of clients who were coming in, and there was a, a young woman who came in, and her life was just a mess. And a result of this devastating set of consequences and choices she had made maritally with her children and her own health, and she was sort of in this destitute, desperate place. I remember the, 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 the therapy team was all coming together to sort of talk about a treatment plan for her. What should be said to her? What, what direction should we, should we go? And, and there was kind of an, an, a majority opinion that said, you know, what we need to do is help her reframe her decisions, reframe them. What she did was actually noble. She was just trying to take care of herself. She was, she was doing the best she could. The, 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 there wasn't necessarily any moral weight one way or the other to any of the decisions that she was making. In other words, they recognized something, even if they didn't. See, to call it what it was, and everyone knew, to call it what it was meant to raise this prospect that there is this burden of guilt, this burden of weight, this burden of sin, and we don't know what to do with it. What, what do we tell this woman? You see, no mere man or woman can take away sin. And, and believe me, we culturally look for all sorts of created ways to try to deal with it, don't we? We eat and we smoke and we drink and we watch and we spend and we acquire anything, anything, anything to fix this problem we know deep in ourselves we can't fix but see, without the Lamb, you and I are hopelessly lost. We are hopelessly lost. And the reason, look at verse 30, that John says Jesus has the authority, that he qualifies as the Lamb. He says he outranks me, and he outranks me because he was before me. In other words, Jesus is perfect because he's God. He is the Word. He's existed from all eternity. John says, I baptize with water which is kind of a symbol of cleansing. But you know what Jesus does? He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He actually cleanses hearts and minds. He actually cleanses you from your sin. Do you see how central this lamb motif, this lamb metaphor is? It is the heart of the gospel. It is the heart 
of God. When I say the heart of God, look back at the text. I'm going to close on this. This idea that the Lamb of God, literally in the Greek, it means God's Lamb. The Lamb belonging to God. In fact, down in verse 34, that phrase, Son of God, literally means God's chosen. So what this means is that Jesus is God's chosen lamb, God's chosen sacrifice. And that as God's chosen sacrifice, Jesus has been specifically prepared by God to be offered up. For what reason? To remove your sin. To remove my sin. To take our sin away. Shouldn't we think immediately of Abraham and Isaac? And Abraham is going to offer up his only son, Isaac. And Isaac said, Dad, where's, where's, the, where's the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say? God will provide it. God will provide it. And there was what in the, in the bushes? A ram or a lamb. See, God has provided the sacrifice that's necessary. The, the death of Jesus was not an accident. It was not something that was, that was merely used by God to turn around a tragic set of circumstances. Jesus literally was groomed from the day he was born to go to Jerusalem to die. See, Romans 8.32 captures this well. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, a lot of times in the progressive wing, this idea of the wrath of God can be frowned upon. It seems barbaric and offensive and, and uncouth and, and pagan ritualistic. Offered up his son. How, that's divine child abuse. But listen to what John 3 says. Same, same author, quoting Jesus. <laughs> Got that? Okay. John 3, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. You see, God's wrath rests upon everyone in the world. God's wrath naturally rests upon everyone in this room. And that's why Jews reading this text... Would have been, this would have been the greatest news, that this Lamb of God takes away the sin, not of a particular socioeconomic class or a nation or the Upper East Side, Northeast Side of Tallahassee and Killarn or a specific ethnic group or a specific tribe or socioeconomic level. No, no, no. Whoever you are, wherever, you, wherever you're from, whatever you've done, the Lamb of God can take away your sin today. It's available to you, whoever you are, without distinction, whatever you've done. Without the Lamb, you and I are hopelessly lost. But when we trust in the Lamb, entrust ourselves to the Lamb, turn to the Lamb, He takes away your sin. In fact, He can take away the sin of the world. Let's proclaim that, Christian. Let's pray.